Ahoy hoy! Welcome aboard the Character Arc Podcast, where we discuss story elements to movies we just watched. We put a special emphasis on character as we break down things we liked, didn't like, and provide changes as if we were the ones making the movie. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's me, Richard Bertelson. And it's Ted Hong over here. This week, we watched The Trial of the Chicago 7. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? If you're not familiar with this movie, this is a new release on Netflix. It is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It is a movie. It's based on a true story about the trial of eight and then later seven people, um, generally left-wing activists, who really aren't from the same organization at all. They come from various different left-wing sort of protest groups, but they got lumped into a riot that happened at the Democratic National Convention in yep. 1968, and they are char- they are on trial for the riot. Not really. They're on trial for conspiracy to incite violence um, across state lines is what they're actually on trial for. And the trial is a giant clusterfuck, um, pretty much a horrific miscarriage of justice and heavily politically motivated. Um, it is a relevant movie. We'll get into some some of that discussion as we go, like how it is. And like, I would say it's relevant in the sense that obviously we've had lots of protests about very different things. But this does showcase how our system sort of treats people with leftist views, treats people trying to exercise their freedom of speech, how our judicial system itself is biased towards certain types of people. Um, Really, the movie is a good watch in 2020, although I do want to make sure that I say that like this movie, even though it touches on racial injustice, it is not the central focus of it. And this year, I think a lot of our talks about, you know, judicial inequality, the police and activism, um, we are rightfully focused on the racial side of those things today, and we should be. Right. Um, so when we talk about this movie, there are comparisons, but it's not the same exact thing at all. Uh, Ted, how did you like this movie? I, I mean, it's Aaron Sorkin, so it's hard not to enjoy what he does. Although I want to add the fact that this movie was originally set to be directed by Spielberg back in like 2007. Really? So yeah, so it was not even intended for to reflect anything that was happening now. However... Uh, from my understanding, Sorkin decided to bring this project up again a couple of years ago because, well, the case that Trump was elected. Yes. So. Yeah, and Aaron Sorkin doesn't direct a lot. He is a writer by, I think he would call himself a writer, and it's what most people know him from. He's right. the writer of The West Ring, Sports Night, uh, Studio 60. Those are his shows. Newsroom, Newsroom. those are his shows. Mm-hmm. Um, his movies are A Few Good Men. Social um, Network. The Social Network. Charlie. Yeah, Charlie Wilson's War, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, among others. But he he did direct a... I think this is only a second this movie This is a direct. second one, yes. Uh, but he's coming to his own. I mean, one of the things uh, 
Because his movies do tend, you mentioned Spielberg, his movies do tend to get directed by some pretty impressive names. Um, the Social Network is Christopher Nolan. Correct, yes. And uh, the Steve Jobs movie he did was directed by Danny Boyle. Um, these are people who take Sorkin's excellent dialogue and turn them into also visual and kinetic feasts, if you will. Because one of the things that could be a challenge of directing Sorkin's work is that Sorkin is very dialogue heavy. Very, very dialogue heavy. Right. And sorry, let me correct that. That's actually David Fincher. David Fincher. Christopher Nolan. Um, In my mind, they're very similar directors. (laughs) But yes, okay, that is a valid They're very detail-oriented and very stylized in in their own right. In order for his movies not to just be a bunch of people talking at each other, you really kind of have to have a flair to directing them. And so... It's cool that those other directors take on, you know, his very good words, for lack of a better thing. <laughs> I was interested to see that this movie, even though Aaron Sorkin directs it himself, also keeps a very quick pace yep. and is very visually interesting. The way that he cuts back and forth to a bunch of different details, he doesn't just let you... It's not just in one chronological order, it's intercut and interlaced with parts of the events that actually happen as they are recounting it, um, which is, I feel like, is very, very Sorkin-esque. It allows you to to be engaged while also hearing them recounted and any sort of like discrepancies that pop up. Yeah. So it keeps you engaged and keeps you a little bit challenged because you don't just kind of like sit there and just allow for this information to be poured in. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of what I like so much about Aaron Sorkin's writing and I think why he's generally praised. Uh, but before we get into the actual characters in the story itself, because that is what we try to focus here is the characters and, you know, what makes them tick how it relates to our world and life and all that stuff like that. But Aaron Sorkin, he has this way... Well, his his writing is all political. Even the ones that quote-unquote aren't political, like the Steve Jobs movie or The Social Network or Sports Night, which was a show, a sitcom about people making a sports news program, they're still political. They're still dealing with um, public opinion of things. They're still de- dealing with you know the cultural zeitgeist. They're still de- dealing with corporate operations so he is he is a political writer that i don't think he would deny that in any way shape or form that's typically his yeah his mo and as such he deals with some very i don't want to say dry subjects they're often very important subjects but he deals with things that require a lot of explanation and that's really hard to do in a movie not be super fucking boring but he's really good at getting complex political ideas out without it sounding like you're being lectured to. And that's, that's how he writes his dialogue, though. He, put, he kind of pits two, uh, two people against each other and has them come back and forth, adds in usually some kind of layer where you see an example of it on screen. And that's, that's super hard to do. You could pick any movie that he's written and have someone else write it, and it would be it could potentially be super boring policy discussions and he he avoids that because he's just really good at keeping keeping things punchy and smart and i think that a one a major criticism of his would be that therefore his people his characters don't sound like people this is not actually how two people sitting in a dark room talk to each other like sometimes like sometimes they're just they're so on the nose, or they they have this weird circular talk that ends up being clever and pithy. Right. But I think that 
that's okay if you think about it more like theater. Yes. I was going to say Shakespeare and I Shakespeare, don't yeah. and I don't mean <clears throat> that I don't mean to like elevate him to some weird thing. All I'm saying is when Shakespeare's characters, he knows that's not what people sound like. Right. Shakespeare knows that people don't talk in iambic pentameter. That's just the art of what he's doing. Right. And that is the art of what Sorkin is doing here, too. That's his background. Yeah. He knows that this is not what people sound like. He is trying to make a, a fantastical representation of these political ideas in a way that is easy to, easy to digest and therefore easy to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I guess you could even liken to... Tarantino, the sort of dynamic dialogue that all the characters seem to have, right? For Tarantino, it's all very pithy and all very uh, heavy and cultural related kind of things. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tarantino, they're all like these idealistic or over, not over the top, but just like very, very sharp people, which, you know, it's, it's almost like a superhuman kind of approach to it because people, well, yes, they may discuss things in this manner, but not at all times, mm-hmm. right? They don't have like this encyclopedic... <laughs> they right. can't recall these things and, always and it's and Tarantino is a weirdly good comparison because Tarantino also has that style of writing where I say something that seems like a non sequitur that seems irrelevant to plot right. and then you say something that seems like a non sequitur and then five lines of dialogue later we've actually come together to make a very concise point right. and that is almost oh. like almost like we planned it yeah. and that is just no one talks that right. way but that is also what Sorkin does yeah. almost <laughs> Almost always, yeah. Right. How did how did you feel about the the casting, in terms of like the historical um, people? Yeah, I mean, you know, I can't comment too much on what the I, you know, we were not alive at this time, and right, you know, right. I'm I'm not familiar enough with the people as far as how much they may have sounded like these people. Um, I won't comment on looks because that to me is not important to yeah, the casting. It's, yeah, not um, it's not important that an actor look like the person. In fact, some movies pay too much weight to that, and it hurts them. Uh, but what I will say is that this cast is incredible. For one, also, right, <laughs> if you go, if we could keep going to the writing, um, it could so easily be difficult to find actors who can deliver this kind of dialogue in a genuine way. It's kind of like if you go to, you know, Harrison Ford's quote of George Lucas's writing, like you can write the ship, but you can't say it. It's like <laughs> I, I right. don't think, you know, not to compare George Lucas's writing to Aaron Sorkin's, but it is to some degree such not natural dialogue that. A performer has to really know what what Sorkin's going for in order to deliver these lines. And man, this cast is is excellent. I mean, it helps that they are so distinct, too, because there is a relatively large central cast. Granted, all seven of the Chicago Seven aren't given equal importance, which is necessary for the film. Absolutely. Uh, our main focus goes with Tom. Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden. And... Um, the actor that plays him is Redmayne. Uh, Eddie Redmayne. And Eddie Redmayne is... <laughs> I remember hearing something about Eddie Redmayne, which is that um, he he only looks like a normal person in the context of a historical movie. <laughs> like, he doesn't look like a human who lives today, which is why he's pretty much never been in a movie that takes place today. <laughs> huh. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> uh, he has to put on an American accent in this, which I think he does very right. well. Actually, like three of them, at least three of them. Yeah. For one, he looks the part. He looks like the pragmatic one, which that's his character. His character yeah. is the... the Straight-laced He is an of. activist, but he is a tame one. He yes. is a let's do it by the... Let's, 
let's convince people, let's change hearts and minds with logic and with the process that we have. Mm-hmm. His presence allows you to get a lot of his character without the movie needing to spend a lot of time on it because the movie does have a lot to get through and a lot of different characters, so that helps. Same is true of Sasha Baron Cohen, who is really a foil to Tom. Absolutely. Um, Abby is that character's name. Abby Hoffman. And <clears throat> Sasha Baron Cohen, it helps that he's a comedian, a very talented comedian. This is not a particularly comedy-driven movie, though it does have comedy in it. And I think the fact that he is so skilled at as being a comedian allows him to get a lot of his personality across while he also plays a serious person in the movie because he is someone who just has a much more flippant view of the systems and the structures that Tom seems to trust. And so Sasha Baron Cohen is so good at both being a serious portrayal of a historical figure, but just reminding you at every turn it's not that he doesn't take it seriously. It's that he just has so little faith in the system they're up against. Right. I, I forget where I heard this, but it was like it was a character or someone saying that they trust the institution that, that the that, you know, holds up this society. But it's populated by people. That would be what Abby Hoffman says in was the it? film on okay. the stand okay, at the okay, end. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. And it was just it was just a very apt description yeah because it can be you know it can be corrupted for for a lot of the movie he's he he comes off as someone who is just really radical like almost like he doesn't believe the system works at all but i the, the more you get to know him though the more you do kind of see that no he actually has a great respect for our system he just thinks it's being abused and misused and he wishes that it would be used properly right um and that that everyone's voice did matter and that the government didn't hold such contempt for people's own ideas and thoughts, particularly if they are against the government. Like, right. that's not even the best way to say it. But kind of like he says, you know, he doesn't have contempt for the government. His government has contempt for him. And it goes to that idea, too, where he's asked the question, you know, did, did you come to D.C. to start? Or were you hoping for a clash with the police or whatever? Mm-hmm. And... He hesitates, and Joseph Gordy Levy, <laughs> he uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt, uh, who plays uh, the main prosecutor, the lead prosecutor in that case, Schultz, uh, Richard Schultz, yes, uh, he s- says, "I can't believe you even had to think about that." And um, Abby Hoffman's response is, "You know, give me a second. I've never been on trial for my thoughts before," and that is actually such a cornerstone to our system: the idea that your thoughts are the ultimate should be the ultimate protected right. The people have thoughts of a million different ways, of a million different things in a million different ways. Some of them are horrifying. Even normal people. Like, like, nah, normal's not the right word. Even generally law-abiding citizens, even people who are kind and honest, still sometimes have fantasies or thoughts of, of violence or of extreme natures. And what you think is nobody's fucking business unless you choose to share it, and if you choose to share it, that is what the First Amendment is about, is you have the right to share it. You don't have the right to hurt people. You don't have the right to, like, steal from people. You don't have the right... But you have the right to express yourself. That is fundamental to our democracy. It is fundamental to any democracy, particularly if it's anti-government, because the, the reason why it's the First Amendment is because 
the only way to not be oppressed is to be able to tell the government, fuck you. Like, you are hurting us. You are not listening to us. You should not be in charge anymore. The government works for us. When governments in history have generally been autocratic, they have, and still do around the world now, limited the ability for people to speak their mind, to think things, to want better things. And so the idea that we would punish people not because of an action they did, but because of thoughts they had, is almost by definition a tyrannical government. It is a government that refuses to let you hope for a better, freer society. And well, that and that idea goes into the into what Tom ends up saying. This is after Abby's testimony, where Tom is sitting there, and I think his big change for one in the scenes leading up to that, when they have their argument right before Abby Hoffman takes the, the stand. Tom is then get, we kind of skip the sentencing in the movie, which is it's kind of a strange move, but whatever. Oh, uh, not oh, the sentencing. They don't, we yeah. skip the verdict and the we verdict, go straight yeah. to the sentencing, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. And the the judge tells them, you know, they get to make a statement because there's so many of them. He's asked the you know their lawyer to kind of pick one to speak for them all. They pick Tom. And Tom listens to the instructions of the judge, which the instructions of the judge are, you know... In a way, it's a, it's a commentary on the whole thing, right? Yeah. It's like a very subduing kind of thing. Hey, we'll let you say things only under these conditions. Right. He's, he's like, if you're... In a very, like, disempowering kind of way, as long as you're polite. And, but, sorry, I did want to quickly jump on that point. It's the idea of what Abby goes about in saying, like, it doesn't matter if, sure, constitutionally, we're all the same, but really, that's not the case. Right. And so Thomas doesn't see it that way. Abby does. He's living it. And right. so he has to go through these kind of tactics just to be able to get his voice out there. Right. And you're talking about that that kind of climactic scene between them where right. they, they finally hash it out. Yes. And this is just a representation of the two... The two, mo- the two extreme sides of liberalism, which is a very central center-based, like, traditional democratic. Well, and then there's, yeah. like, a more progressive, uh, you know, the cultural revolutionary kind, which is what Abby represents. And where Tom... Well, Thomas, Tom does identify himself as a progressive. Yes, but I think his actions are much more in line with a political norm. Right. The way that he would achieve it. Um, which is exactly, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, which yeah. is exactly what Abby criticizes him for. He's like, we can't achieve it that way. Well, can't pri- prioritize elections over the actual concerns, the actual problems. Right. the The main conflict between them is that Tom Tom looks the part. Like as far as he is, he's buttoned up. He's you know well kempt. He speaks eloquently. He he is there to represent the good boy who will sit, you know, and talk boy. to a congressman and just mm-hmm. be an, a, an upstanding citizen. And Abby represents a wilder spirit of like, no, this thing is fucked up. Let's do, let's do this by tearing it down, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. argument they have is that Tom is like, I, well, you know, what he says is, Abby, I don't like you because when people think of the politics that we share for the next 50 years, they're going to think about you handing out flowers to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon with your mind, taking drugs, having wild sex, looking like a dirty, you know, hippie, for lack of a better word. That's, those aren't his exact words, but that's what he's saying. 
And they won't think about the things we're actually fighting for. So we're going to lose elections because they won't think of equality. They won't think of education. They won't think of, you know, these things that make us more equal. And so Abby's like retort to that is elections were your number one. All of the good stuff is number two, to which Tom says, if you don't win elections, you don't get number two. That's the only way you get it. I can't believe you don't understand that yet. And what Abby says is, well, what you don't understand is like we don't have money or power. So by being a little more eccentric, people pay attention to us. And so why don't you get that? Like it's a that, bit of a gamble. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, Tom is swayed in a certain way, I think because that, that judge's speech at the sentencing that says, yes, if you're remorseful, if you're respectful, if you're brief, you know, it, he's essentially saying... If you any sort of like you can, if you you can't say whatever you want, if you 100% (laughs) fall in line into because Tom even says, just to be clear, my government will like me better if I am these things, right? The judge is like, Yeah, and I think that's where it breaks in Tom, where he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand on what is nothing more than just a look that Tom gives, Mm -hmm. but that's that the government works for us, we don't work for the government, doesn't. Government is there for us all to reach an agreement and live together and make sure it's fair. The government is not there to tell us how to think and how to act and who to be. And so that's where he takes... He is respectful in his final moment, but he is not brief. And, you know, he goes to read the 4,000-plus names of the dead from Vietnam that happened just in the course of the trial they were in. I think that's the moment where he agrees more with Abby Hoffman, where he's like... I have been at least a little wrong by trying to work within the system so agreeably because the system clearly just doesn't work for me or for for people who hold my views and ideals and who are in my position. So to some degree, I do have to work outside of it the way that Abby does. And, you know, it's not that Abby doesn't come along either because Abby does, you know, kind of say in the previous scene, that he's read everything that Tom has ever published, that he thinks he's a brilliant mind. And when he is sitting on the stand, he does take it serious. He is a more subdued, professional... More controlled. Yeah. Like, he's not trying to make a mockery of things so much anymore, but he is able to articulate his point uh, more accurately. If we're going to talk about character arcs in the scope of this story, they each transform each other like they're okay so like they're not in opposition of each other however by being in the same situation and having a sort of foil as you had even said uh they're able to kind of reflect on themselves and adjust accordingly that it's not just one aspect it's not just one uh method Mm -hmm. it's a we kind of discussed this before uh and i like this word a confluence of it yeah if you want to expand on that they i mean they both believe they both have the same core beliefs but they just, throughout most of the film, have vastly different ideas of how you achieve Approach those goals. It. Right, right. And what happens for the character arc is instead of one convincing the other, they actually come together and kind of realize, no, actually both are necessary. Right. And maybe we can both be better at them. That's kind of my t- my reading, at least, no, of no, their character no, arc. No, no, I think so. Very much so, because Thomas Hayden, who's very, uh, I guess I'll use by the book, he was going along the, the already well-established path and was trying to mitigate whatever happened so he could continue his 
his stance. However, Abby taking the other aspect of being more extreme and more radical, they both see that there, there is a place and time for both approaches, right? So maybe the more radical type protesting will get the, will set the stage for everyone to see, but then also strengthening your credibility by being able to apply yourself within the system can also show that, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually want to wrap up in a minute. I just want to hit a couple things real quick. Oh, yeah, sure. <clears throat> There's a lot to this movie. The movie is very dense. It's not, it's a, it's over two hours, but it, it moves briskly, so it doesn't feel bad. It doesn't feel like dense. that. I would say, com- <laughs> I, yeah. There's dense. a lot of moving parts. Yeah, dense and connotations. It's kind of where I'm going to hit a bunch of little things that we didn't talk about and okay. we're not going to talk about because we'd be here forever. Um, I just want to hit them real quick. We didn't talk about Bobby's character very much. Um, he was the black guy who was roped into this trial completely unfairly, treated as a horrible miscarriage of justice because he didn't have legal representation. And that is terrible. I think that that plot line, I, I mean, it was historical, but I, I'm glad that there was something in the film, though, that was able to show, hey, this thing that these white boys are dealing with, Try being black and dealing with this stuff because it is so much worse, especially right. then, still now, still a problem. The justice system does not work the same. This is especially egregious what happened to Bobby, but a problem nonetheless currently. Right. Um, Michael Keaton. I would like to jump on Michael Keaton's character. I love... He's only in the film for like five minutes, but just his performance, just this southern sort of like attorney general... Like, even when he gets called to the stand, he, like, hikes up his pants. Yeah. Like, Michael Keaton's doing so many little things here. The way he, like, leans on his desk and is just kind of cocky. You you could have put him in a cowboy hat on a farm somewhere, and his performance would have also fit, even though he was the former attorney general of the United States. Just really like the character that Michael Keaton brought to that. Uh, and the line he gives to the judge, which is that the president is not my client, uh, the, or the attorney general is yeah, yeah. the president, not the client of the attorney general. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised that Aaron Sorkin avoided the temptation to do what he always does, which have that puncher line. It's true. The American people are the the attorney general is represents the American people and the, and its government, um, not the president specifically. Something that our president currently should know, but doesn't seem to. Just real quick, I loved the line when it goes through the montage of the people taking the stand, and they turned out all to be undercover cops, and then one of the defendants leans in and says, is it possible that seven protesters led uh, led 10,000 undercover cops into a protest (laughs) in 1968? (laughs) Those are just some things. Also, Joseph Gordon-Levitt gave a really good performance. His character is strange, um, I think. We talked a little bit before, maybe a little bit romanticized. That's just how Morgan goes about it. Yeah, more so than the actual prosecutor of the time. Right. But it works. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's a good actor. I mean, obviously, the movie's not historically accurate entirely. It is, for the most part. Um, But there were some embellishments and some additions. Like, there were only three undercover cops. There was no female. Daphne O'Connor. Yeah. That character stood out to me a little bit, and I think it's because there were so few women in the movie. Because uh, yeah. she's also given a weirdly outsized role, even though she's in she's so small of a role, but also her role is kind of like feels purposely emphasized. Yeah. And I think that's because there's just no women in the movie. And I think Aaron Sorkin was trying. I mean, 
it's one of those things where a movie of all men is kind of an issue. In this case, it is a historical drama where in real history, the seven and eight defendants were all men. The prosecution teams were men. So there's not much you can do about that. So I think he was literally just trying to be like, I got to have a woman say something somewhere in this movie. So I don't know. I, I'm i not congratulating him for it. No. It feels weird and forced. Despite I liked her character, I liked yeah. the actress. Um, yeah, really good performance there as well. Um, yeah, the whole thing with Bobby Seale, just the whole idea of the the whole gagging process, which apparently didn't just happen in one time. Mm-hmm. It happened over a few days as well. It's so disgusting. It is ridiculous. And so I guess my comment would be how, like, even though, like, and as we had just noted that Abby had made this point, yes, those things, the institutions that are in place are kind of, I mean, they're not flawless, but they are designed to try and be fair. But if you'll look at this judge, uh, was it Julius um, Hoffman? Mm-hmm. And just how he, in the guise of fairness, he it, he, just an egregious abuse of power. Yeah. And it goes unchecked because of like this sort of, there's no... Well, partially because we just accept that it must be fair and they're right. in a position of power, so we just believe them. And that's kind of these guys' point is just because the system is quote unquote fair doesn't mean all we doesn't mean all the people running it are right in fact they're not they're very explicitly not <laughs> which is why with abby and the whole cultural revolution it's just kind of opening people's eyes up to it there's a, really a lot to unpack here but i know we're also pressed on time i might find something to add to it later i don't know you could say a lot about any given 10 minutes of the movie yeah. is more what i mean like there's so oh, much yeah, that sure. you it touches on so many things in so many different ways. Uh, like, case in point, the opening 10 minutes. Yeah. All of the historical found footage, enough to kind of give you a sort of backdrop of what is going on, um, or at least remind you. And then immediately with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and what's his name? Where Joseph Gordon-Levitt would be the person that represents that the institutions are designed to be fair, but the people running it are not. You see the Attorney General Mitchell. He was going, trying to pin these guys on the Rat Brown Law. A law that had never been used. used. I mean, was passed for a very racist reason. For a very racist reason. And there's yeah. actually, that shit exists in our legal system a lot, by the way. Um, so again, imperfect. There's lots of things both passed for racist reasons and a bunch of laws no one's ever been charged with. Um, I mean, and I say those things separately. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been a bunch of racial laws that people have been charged with, but right. there's also a bunch of laws just for a million different things that no one ever gets charged with because what happens is Congress is like, this sounds good, let's pass it. But then no legal person ever finds a reason to use it because it was just right. Congress flexing. That's all flexing. it was. But yeah, to, to wrap it up, there's a lot to this movie. It's very educational and it's very reflective of the times right now. And it's also kind of a little sickening to see that we some views are still being perpetuated. If anything, I would hope that even if you may not believe or agree with this, I think it should at least urge some sort of critical thinking when you see these things happen, as opposed to just having like a knee-jerk reaction and just just putting yourself in another person's Absolutely. I mean, what this movie does so well is point out to you possibly that the people in charge, when they tell you something happened a certain way... It may just because they're in charge doesn't mean that that's true. Right? They they, they are impeccable. They have or... an agenda when they're telling you how it happened, and this movie really explores that a lot. And we should think about that every day whenever our government 
tells us, whenever the police tell us, whenever elected officials tell us, whenever the judicial system tell us this is what happened, they have an agenda for saying that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't believe anything they ever say. Correct, that doesn't right. mean that it's all conspiracy bullshit. It means you should look into it. It means look you should think it. about it. Or maybe they have misinterpreted it. It's possible. Right. We're all human. They, they don't have all the facts sometimes. Exactly. Precisely. So yeah. good for you to check on your on your own. This isn't about, yeah, th- I think what we're trying to say here is this isn't about radicalizing anyone against the government. This is more right, about right. saying every time you hear anything from anyone, think about it. Just think about it and just ask some questions and then, ver- and then agree or disagree based on your having taken the time, not just on the fact that it was said. Take a moment. Think about it. Respond accordingly. Very timely film. It is election season. If you're listening to this, when it airs, um, you're going to vote. Early voting's already started, or you're going to vote within vote, the vote, next vote. two weeks. So go vote. Go vote for, you know, the person you believe will lead the country the best. And make sure you vote for locals also. Make sure you vote for your city and state elected officials, because they actually affect your life more, more. than the president does. Right. Um, they are the ones who make policies that you feel in a much shorter term. You uh, can feel the effects more, more readily. quickly. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you so much for listening to the Character Arc podcast. Uh, my name is Richard. And I'm Ted. You can find us at characterarc.net. You can find us on Facebook at Character Arc, although we don't do so much there anymore because Facebook is being a pain in my ass. So you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Character Arc. Thank you so much. <laughs>